You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We uh, left off last time uh, in chapter 2 of Philippians. If you'll be turning there, we're, we left off in verse 11 of chapter 2. And we'll pick up there. But before we do, this passage has been uh, a text that has always had special meaning to me. And actually, I remember years ago when the Awana was being, uh, we had the Awana program going in the old church building. And as part of the assignment, I assume, the some of the Awana members or the girls that were training for leadership in the, some of the Awana teams, we're calling the pastors and asking them what their favorite verses were. And I remember, I think it was Jamie Rich that called me and she asked what my favorite verse was. And I said, well, it's actually two verses. And it's in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. And it's verses 12 and 13. And I really have a great love for those verses. However, the more I study these verses, the more I recognize how accountable I am. And we all are as we receive God's word, we're accountable. And yet that's good because our accountability is to the God who saved us and to the God who causes us to persevere in our salvation. So we want to understand this because last week, as we looked at the text, we considered all the aspects of paradoxes in Scripture. So we'll examine that as we open this text this morning, but let's open in prayer before we begin to look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning that your grace is sufficient for our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that it's you who extended your mercy and grace for our salvation. It is you who has drawn us to yourself. It is you who has caused us to exercise saving faith for our salvation. We thank you. It is also you who work in us to both will and to do of your pleasure. We ask this morning that you would quicken our hearts to not only have a deeper understanding of that as we examine your word, but we pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us and empower us to be obedient to your glory and that we may bring honor to your name as we practice these truths. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
Well, I'll back up because we looked at, we concluded with verse 11 last week in chapter 2 of Philippians. And Paul concluded that segment of this text with this. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that comes from the word kurios. To the glory of God the Father. And now he changes his focus. In verse 12, he says this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, as we left off, Paul addresses the Philippians now as my beloved. Paul knew that the Philippians would face a great deal of trials. He also knew that as they tried to follow the example of the Lord, as he used Christ himself as the example of the supreme example of humility that he wanted to lift up for them to follow, he wanted them to face the Christian life in the power of God's might and not be so reliant upon him. Remember, again, he was imprisoned in Rome. He looked forward and had hopes of joining them once again, as did they. So he's addressing them here as my beloved. Uh, there was some enemies at, of these believers in Philippi that were false teachers. There were Jewish legalists, and there were also Gentile libertines, all of which were enemies of the gospel. Somehow, Paul wanted them to understand that they had to stand against these enemies only in God's strength. So he wanted them to live in harmony. He knew there was a conflict between uh, Iodia and Sentichi. They were sisters in the Lord, but he admonished them in chapter 4 to live in harmony in the Lord. Verse 2 in chapter 4. Paul had made allowances for some of their failures, as the Lord does ours. Because we live under the understanding of a loving God and his love never diminishes for us. We serve a forgiving God who is always willing to restore a repentant heart to fellowship. We're to follow Christ's example and to work out our salvation with confidence that he loves us and he will work in and through us. He goes on, he says, just as you've always obeyed. Now, this is a compound verb that has the basic meaning of placing ourselves under what has been heard and therefore submitting and obeying. We listen to God's word and then we obey it. Most of the Philippians believers were obeyed, had obeyed the gospel and the Christian teaching but there was the danger of leaning too much upon Paul. They 
they had a great confidence in Paul. They had personal interaction with Paul, and yet they were greatly dependent upon the Apostle Paul. Sometimes we have a tendency to lean upon other people rather than upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, God has given us the body and we're to be uh, interceding for one another. We're to help one another. There's all kinds of scriptures that give us the exhortation of one another's. We are to support one another. We're to love one another. We're to do all kinds of uh, exhortations for one another. We're to restore one another when there's a fault and we see a brother in sin. We're to help restore that brother or sister. So we're exhorted throughout the New Testament to do so. But our reliance is not upon another believer for to, to live out our faith. Our reliance is upon the Lord Jesus Christ to do that. Paul loved and cared for these believers, and he couldn't wait to see them. He had the pleasure of being with them in the past, and he had a great and strong affection for them. The loving attitude he had for them was appreciated by all the Philippian saints. So often, uh, we come across believers uh, throughout our travels in different areas, and all of a sudden, we realize we have an instant bond. When there are true, regenerate, born-again believers, and we go somewhere, and we may be complete strangers, and yet we meet somebody that's a true believer, there's a bond that we don't have with the world. And Paul had a special bond with these Philippian believers. So Paul was concerned now, and he wanted them to be strengthened. He wanted them to be encouraged at the same time, knowing what they would face. He also wanted them to understand that he wanted them to be obedient, not just in his presence, but in his absence as well. How often do Christians just exercise certain practices or certain behaviors around other Christians, and then when they're not around Christians, they have a total different behavior? Perhaps we have either experienced that ourselves or seen other professing Christians do so. Paul didn't want that. He didn't want them to feign their Christianity. He wanted their Christianity be lived out in reality. He wanted it to be not only honoring to God, but he wanted it to be a testimony to all those around them. So he tells them, not just in my presence only, but much more in my absence. Their obedience must be motivated not only by when Paul was with them, but also when they were apart. The only means of contact 
they had with the apostle, of course, was through letters and an occasional visit. Once in a while, they would send somebody from the church at Philippi who would visit Paul, make that difficult journey to Rome, spend time with Paul, bring food and various supplies to Paul, and catch him up on all that was needed and all that was going on with the Philippian saints, and then would return with messages and so forth and updates about Paul himself. And that's the only communication they had. At the same time, these visitors to Paul would bring letters. And that was the only form of communication that Paul would have with these saints. And so they missed them, as well as Paul missing the saints at Philippi. So he wanted them to understand This is the only form of communication we have, and I'm interceding for you, but you must be able to live in the presence of this lost world and to face these enemies in God's strength. Now, he's already admonished them to follow the example of Christ. He's already told them to live in a selfless manner. To not to consider their own selves, but the needs of others. Then to live this out in a way that would honor God. The tense of the verb, uh, when he asks them or commands them to work out their own salvation, is a continuous, sustained effort. Our salvation is a process of sanctification. It's a pursuit and it's a pressing on. It's a race and it's a battle. Putting forth a sustained effort. We battle against three strong enemies as Christians. We face three fronts. The world, the flesh, and Satan. We have, however, the Holy Spirit within us and we have His Word to overcome the enemies. We say that we trust in the sovereignty of God, but when we face difficulties and trials, that tests our faith. Last week, I visited a friend who lives down in Kootenai County whose uh, wife is suffering from cancer. She just found out she has a very aggressive form of cancer. And they used to go to my Bible study in Sunday school when I was teaching down there. And that family has suffered greatly. About four or five years ago, they lost their son and granddaughter in a car accident. Their son was the same age as our son, And the husband, the friend of mine, he he really went through a real struggle with his relationship with the Lord. And when I met with him last week, I was just astounded at what God had done in him, in and through him, through this trial with his wife. 
he said that God had brought him to this point that he completely entrusted his wife with the Lord. He had entreated the Lord not to take his wife, but he said he was at peace with whatever God had for him, and he would give glory to God no matter what God deemed in his sovereign will. And his wife had the same attitude. And I, I just saw such a growth in him. It just lifted my heart. And then I talked to another family that attends the church that they uh, presently go to, and they said the same thing. They saw a dramatic change in the lives of these uh, individuals and how honoring it was to God to see how the Lord was working in and through them. Paul goes on to say, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean, with fear and trembling? Does it mean that we're not working hard, if we're not working hard enough at our uh, sanctification, that we should fear God and fear His punishment? Actually, no. Because we don't work out our salvation in our own strength. The actual meaning uh, of the word fear or trembling is the word in which we have the English word tremor. The proper usage of the word becomes the when we're faced with the awareness of our spiritual weakness. And this is the attitude that God seeks from us, which we could look at in Isaiah, but I won't turn there. I'll just read you the text from Isaiah 66.2. To this one I will look, to whom is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. We should have a healthy and wholesome fear of God. When I think of how God's name is taken today by professing Christians, uh, and I don't speak locally in this uh, fellowship, but I'm talking universally. When you hear God's name used, it's taken in vain. It's taken in a way that's almost cavalier, with no reverence or fear or respect. And Paul here is talking about a reverential fear. Yes, it is a living God who has the ability to take out anyone. But we have no fear of condemnation. Paul tells us in Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. We have no fear of eternal condemnation. If we disobey God as Christians... Yes, we will have consequences of sin. So we should have a reverential and a healthy fear of God. We should reverence God. We should fear a holy God. And this is the, how the word is used in this context. It says in the Old Testament, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 
in Psalm 111.10 and also in Proverbs 1.7 and verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 of Proverbs. This is not a fear of hell or losing our salvation or even a fear of eternal judgment. It is, again, a reverential fear and a holy concern of God and the honor and glory he deserves not to receive his displeasure and a fear that protects us against temptation and sin and motivates us to obedience and righteous living. In the commentary written by John MacArthur, he says this, such fear involves self-distrust, distrust, a sensitive conscience and being on guard against temptation. It necessitates opposing pride and being constantly aware of deceitfulness of one's heart, as well as the subtlety and strength of one's inner corruption. It is a dread that seeks to avoid anything that would offend and dishonor God. End quote. As believers, we should have a healthy fear and a healthy hatred of sin and do what is right before a holy God. We should fear falling into sin and temptation, which would grieve God. Godly fear is a protection for all believers. It keeps us from being chastened and losing our joy. It keeps us from sinning against a holy God. To have godly fear and trembling is not just acknowledging our sinfulness and spiritual weakness. It is a fear that brings deep adoration and love for God. It will help us pray earnestly for God, and it helps us avoid sin. In the Lord's Prayer in chapter Matthew 6, verse 13, it says, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, rescue us from evil. Paul continues, work out is a command. That's an imperative. Paul is giving these Philippian believers the command. This is a command to all believers. To work out. That is a continuous effort. It means to keep on working to completion. To ultimate fulfillment. It's a continuous working out with a sustained effort. The principle of working out our salvation has two aspects. The first is our personal conduct. That is faithful, obedient living. This involves active commitment and personal effort. Sin is to be put off. We are to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's the imperative that Paul gives to Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the Spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling, which with you have been called, Ephesians 4, 1. If Christians are living 
the way in the manner we're supposed to be living, we're not just yielding to God and letting go. That was the quietest view. Remember, I we looked at that last week where we wait upon God to move in our hearts. That is not uh, the way Christians are to function. We don't sit passively and wait for God to move through us. We work out our salvation trusting that God is by His Holy Spirit working in us. And we do so by faith. Everything that we do from justification through sanctification is by faith in God's Word. We must choose to live righteously. It is a willful choice on our part by the power of God's Holy Spirit. That's the first part, our willful conduct. The second part is the working out of our salvation in perseverance. Now, some have concluded that perseverance comes from the believer. They don't understand then that it is God working in us. It isn't our perseverance that takes us through our sanctification because we were unable to save ourselves. If we have the, the same mindset that thinks that they can persevere on their own is the same mindset that thinks that they on their own chose God and were saved because of their own choice. It was by God from beginning through our sanctification to glorification. So we must understand that. But we don't sit passively by because we know that God in us is in us, working in and through us for his good pleasure. The three aspects of salvation are this. Justification, when we're saved. Sanctification, the process in which we're being set apart for God. And then glorification. As we're in this process of sanctification, we must understand that is God is working in us. It is He who changes our will to follow His will. Again, another quote from MacArthur in his commentary in this text. Perseverance in faith is the duty of every true believer, and yet not the power of their security. It is unmistakable and inevitable evidence of divine power operating in the soul. <clears throat> End quote. If you would, uh, let me turn to Colossians one twenty nine. You don't have to turn there with me, but I just want to read you that text. Paul says this in Colossians one twenty nine. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So we have to understand there again, all throughout the New Testament, it is always God working his power in us. Believers persevere because of God's power. In 1 Peter 1.5, Peter says this, they are protected by the power of God through faith 
for a salvation ready be, to be revealed in the last time. Our call to work out our salvation is found throughout the New Testament. We need to have commitment on our part. Fear and trembling do not mean misery or despair because the next verse says, for it is God who is working in you. If it were not for that fact, we'd be unable to work out our salvation. <clears throat> now we look at verse 13, we see God in the role of sanctification. It is by God's Holy Spirit working that begins our changing our wills to work for his good pleasure. It's God power, God's power that works and we can't possibly understand the depths of what that means. And yet, we do not have free will when it comes to spiritual things. <clears throat> you may <clears throat> say, well, I have free will. <clears throat> we make choices. Yes, we do. We make choices every day <clears throat> in temporal matters. We make all kinds of choices daily. But I'm speaking here what the word is talking about is spiritual essence of our lives. God is moving in our lives daily to move us and direct us spiritually. <clears throat> James Montgomery Boyce says this, we must face the truth, even every generation of mankind and if every city and village on the earth had John the Baptist to point Jesus Christ to call him to point to Christ and point to the spiritual and supernatural work of God in the human heart, no one would turn to Christ. If God rearranged the stars of heaven and spelled out, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou wilt be saved. If the angels were sent with the sound of celestial trumpet to call us to repentance, no one would repent. If you have come to God, it is only because God first entered your life by his Holy Spirit to quicken your will, to open your eyes to the truth, and draw you irresistibly to himself. It is only after this that you are able to choose the path that he sets before you, end quote. He calls us to obey, then by his sovereign power, he empowers us to obedience and service. He calls us to holiness and then empowers us to pursue holiness. The word work in this passage is where we get our word energy. God energizes his children to obey and serve him. We can't do anything holy and righteous in our own power, just as we can't be justified by the flesh, Romans 3.20. No one can be perfected or sanctified by the flesh, Galatians 3.3. Colossians 1.29, I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Sanctification 
will continue throughout our lives until God takes us home. He'll accomplish this as we live for him. Those whom God justifies, he also sanctifies. He'll accomplish that. There are two kinds of works, and Paul speaks of them in Ephesians chapter 2. One kind of work is condemned. The other kind of work comes from God. In the first part, Ephesians 2, Paul says this, We have been saved by grace, not of ourselves, but through faith, not of works or human work. And we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works that are a result of God's working, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God is the one who prepared us for good works. He did so. He predestined that before the foundation of the world. So as we consider the work that God prepared for us, we have to understand he did so with the full intention of us carrying those out in his strength. So let's think of that verse. In verse 10 of Ephesians 2, Paul says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God, at the same time we were chosen and elect before the foundation of the world, we were also ordained for good works. God had preordained this for us to walk in them. So as we think of this, he's already equipped us. We can look at a man's talents and gifts, all those things, but all those things are a gift of God. It's nothing that we do on our own. I just admire some people as I watch their talents and giftedness and abilities. But I also give glory to God because I know that he is the one that does that in us and through us. And yet, I admire what God does in these gifted and talented individuals. The power of God in us is a reality. We can act according to a good purpose, but we don't ever take credit. It is to God's glory. Everything we do is for God's glory. The phrase both to will and to work is best interpreted as not referring to God's will and work, but that of the believer. God must come before any effective work is done, and yet a genuine desire to do God's will, as well as the power to obey it, begin with God. To will refers to a thoughtful and purposeful choice, not just to emotional desire. Psalm 119.36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies. God uses two ways to change believers' wills. When we humbly recognize our lives fall short of God's standards of holiness, we become discontent. Isaiah said this in Isaiah chapter 6. We're all familiar with it. 
Woe unto me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He understood his wicked heart. He can also change our wills by a holy desire for obedience. He gives us a hatred of sin and gives us a desire for righteousness. We have a desire to be like Christ. Philippians 3, 1 through 14, Paul shows his discontentment with sin. I won't read the whole passage, but Paul in this text talks about his whole essence of suffering loss of all things. Paul was a persecutor of the church. He was... um, Hebrew of Hebrews, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he goes through this litany of all his accomplishments, but he counted them all as loss for the sake of Christ. He realized that all his accomplishments, his accomplishments and all his religious efforts were just garbage. They were nothing, and he was broken when Christ revealed himself to Paul. God works in our sanctification for his own good pleasure. His will for believers is that they think and do what pleases him. His power working in us is to seek his will and to do his work for his pleasure. I'd like to um, give a quote which was given by Charles Spurgeon. He says this, that God predestines and yet that man is responsible are two facts that few can see clearly. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. If I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these truths can never contradict each other. I do not believe they can ever be welded into one on an earthly anvil, but they certainly will be in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them farthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth Spring. End quote. Charles Spurgeon understood the paradoxes of Scripture. He understood that the unfathomable truths of an infinite God was beyond the finite minds that we try to grasp. As Jim is going through the book of Ecclesiastes, when man tries to gain all the insights and wisdom, He can't comprehend 
the unfathomable truths that we try to understand all things. We just can't. Man does not comprehend the depths that God has revealed. Every Christian should understand that sanctification takes effort, but it's totally and completely dependent upon God's power. These seemingly paradoxes in Scripture are hard to understand. We can do what we can, but we must always give credit to God. Luke says this in Luke 17, 10. So likewise, when you have done all things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done all that has been our duty to do. We as servants should not receive any extra reward for doing what was our duty. We do not boast in ourselves or our achievements, but we do boast in God. In him, we have all things and are enabled to do to work out our salvation. In that text, it was the parable that the Lord was giving. He was talking about working for their wages. And they were due their wages. And they were worth their wages. They weren't due something that, they weren't getting something that they weren't due. They had work for them and they were getting that. We are obeying God and we're doing something that God has commanded us to do. We're not trying to gain anything by our uh, obedience to God's word. And we shouldn't. We are simply obeying him. We shouldn't look for some reward. We are just simply obeying God. And we do so knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that it truly is your work in us, both to will and to do your good pleasure. And Father, we just pray that we would not only apprehend these truths and be able to understand it, but that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing completely and understanding completely that it is you who works in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. We give you praise and thanksgiving for all that you do and we pray that we might honor you and that the sanctification process that you carry out might bring glory to your name. We ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.